Hello and welcome to the Global Cosmetics News Podcast. Today we'll be talking about the rise and rise of indie beauty brands. And first, it's my pleasure to introduce our panellists. Louisa Booth, founder and managing director at Pop Band London. Belgin de Kerr, founder and CEO of the Darcy. Millie Kendall, CEO of the British Beauty Council. And Sarah Jones, partner and client services director at Free the Birds. Welcome everybody. Thank you for having us. So I guess if we uh, start talking about the rise of indie brands, um, apparently they now account for 40% of the market, which is incredible. Let's start by defining indie. What, What are we talking about? Which brands? What is the definition of an indie brand? Do you want to start us off, Millie? I would say that technically an indie brand is a brand that is funded independently. It's an independent brand. I mean, that's sort of, the name says it all, doesn't it? Indie. Um, and I think that the, that the indie brand has become more relevant because of the fact that independent brands 30 years ago, the successful ones were purchased by large organisations and now large organisations own a multitude of brands. So therefore the indie brands are more visible in, in contrast to uh, a brand that's owned by L'Oreal or Estee Lauder. So they've fallen into their own definition, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I think it does. And I think an indie brand comes, you know, with that comes an ethos, an expectation as to how that brand would behave. And it's something that we're seeing larger organisations wanting to get in on as well. So, but I think for me, it's a, it is a brand, an indie brand is a brand with a real purpose. It's usually with a real heart, with a story behind it. And I think for an indie brand to succeed, they've got to be able to tell that story and get that story out there. But I think it's definitely about a behaviour, an attitude, and an ethos um, behind the brand that defines it away from the more expected heritage brands that we see out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, being an independent brand, I think it means so much more to us than just, you know, the technical term mm. of an independent brand. You know, brands like ours have a heart and a soul that consumers can feel and see in the products that they buy from us. Um, I think most indie brands, like you said, have um, a value base that there's so much love, determination and attention that's gone into every detail of the decision making. And they really just kind of want to get their passion across in the products and the message that they get out to consumers. And I think also, I think indie brands now tend to also have a real kind of genuine following and a community around that resonate really with how they feel. So it's a lot more kind of authentic than you would expect maybe a heritage brand to be. Can you be both? I mean, when we say independently funded, some of the biggest indie brands that are often cited, Fendi Beauty, for example, aren't independently funded. So what was the difference? Yeah, but if you look back at sort of, you know, I'm a little bit older than the rest of my panellists. So if you look back at when I started my career and Shuemura was an independent brand founded by a Japanese makeup artist, Aveda was an independent brand founded by a herbologist and a hairdresser. And I think that are those now considered heritage brands because they're owned by L'Oreal or Estee Lauder? I still see those as being independent in their thinking because they were founder-founded, very passionate, very transparent, had a real following, but now they're not owned by those founders they've been sold. I understand the sort of the passion and the transparency and the sort of um, clarity of concept being part of being an indie brand, but the minute those brands are sold to larger organisations, does the game change? Can you still 
classify that as indie. Well, yeah. certainly if you look, for example, at how consumers are reacting to the cruelty-free movement at the moment, mm. and there's been a lot of chat on social media about how if you're owned by L'Oreal, for example, you can't be considered a cruelty-free brand because right. your parent company still tests on animals. I think there is an awareness growing of what it actually is an independent brand and what isn't. Um, and it, I think that being owned by a huge conglomerate necessarily precludes you. But then there's the line of Fenty, for example, who's not owned by LVMH but heavily funded by Kendo. I, I would classify Fenty as being disruptive, not indie. I think that it's a disruptive brand. I think that it's got a great message and a really strong following, but I wouldn't have said it was an indie brand. I think the indie brands start much smaller to me. They... They grow at a different mm. pace. Um, but a, I wouldn't say Fenty's indie, not for me anyway. No. Mm -hmm. I think there's an aspect of discovery as well. Mm. I think you want to discover an indie brand for yourself and become aware of it that way. And I think the interesting indie brands for me are the ones that actually that you do hear about. And I think the opportunity is with ones like, say, Trini London, you know, that is an indie brand and that is born out of an insight and it has a benefit for consumers in the fact that it's stackable and it's easy um, to use it's keeping it simple but obviously the benefit that Trini has is everyone knows who she is to start with so her brand is out there already I think the challenge for indie brands like true indie brands like um, Valjinda's is that how do consumers get to hear about them how do they engage with them how do they find out about them because you know a brand with a heart and a soul and a story and a purpose deserves to be heard I think the the benefit with the multinationals is that if they treat those brands, say like Galanet, for example, with support and let them kind of be their brand, but they have the benefit of the support of a multinational, you know, it's a really good question. Does that mean that they've lost their indie heart or does it mean that they actually then have the opportunity to take it to a next level, to do good, to promote a new message about microbiome, for example? Mm -hmm. You know, it's opening consumers' eyes to a broader world that isn't the traditional products that we've grown up with. Yeah. I think, you know, being an indie brand and talking about advertising and get your message out there, I think it's far more possible now than it, than it has ever been. I mean, you have social media, there are numerous other channels, I mean, like this podcast, for instance, that you can get your message across, you can um, make yourself heard and seen. I think previously, um, that wasn't an option even for heritage brands. There was always the mainstream kind of traditional marketing and advertising and they were the only options that they had at the time. So I think there's there's far more possibilities for indie brands now and to be under the kind of shadow almost of, of a heritage brand, it does mean that I think your message is diluted and I think with indie brands one of the key things is that it's the the founder is usually the key person behind the whole thing, their mind, their um, direction, and everything is is very clear. And but when you've got a committee or a board of people now making these decisions, they're not going to be with the same passion, and it's not going to be um, with with the same kind of um, outcome at the end end of the line, really. So I, I don't think if a heritage brand has taken over an indie brand or is influencing it or has um, invested in it, it can be the same thing. I, I don't think it could still be yeah, an indie I some, brand. Yeah, I somewhat agree with you. I had a brand and it was, um, and our investment came from Boots the Chemist. I wouldn't have considered Ruby and Millie to be an indie brand. We were two creative people who came together to create a brand, but I wouldn't mm. have classed it as indie. Disruptive mm. again, possibly. Yeah. yeah. Not in not not independent. Because we weren't independent. I, I don't know. I just always go back to that sort of 
you know, how independent are you to make a decision and drive mm. that brand forward on your own? That's yeah. really quite relevant, I think. Yeah, I think that's one yeah. of the key, yeah. key things. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's the established definition is that it has to be that you make your decisions independently, perhaps. But I think also when we're talking about the market being 40% indie now, we are including a much wider definition. Yeah. If, if we agree a definition in this room that it's, it's founder-led and independently funded, then I think that perhaps it's being... Um, diluted with disruptive brands in the wider market mm. and that's what mm. I don't think they're saying that 40% of the market is founder-led independently funded put it that way yeah. they're including much larger brands like Kylie Fenty with a very clear figurehead who necessarily mm. has funding from yeah. elsewhere exactly and that just opens up you know the the Instagram following for those kind of people is just off the scale so yeah automatically their audience is there they're going to sell out you know, as soon as they launch. I think the other thing that's really important regarding indie brands as well is that transparency. Because, you know, when Harrison Hall opened, it was, wow, this is a really nice community coffee shop. And then as soon as people discovered, oh, half of it's owned by Tesco's, it lost all its credibility. I had no idea half of it. Really? <laughs> yeah, no, I've never been there, actually. Yeah. But anyway, but, that's, you but know, that always does, it's always a shock, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you feel duped. And I think if, if indie brands are going to have the backing of bigger corporations, then, you know, they need to talk about it. They need to be open about it. So let's talk about Instagram because I think um, one of the key drivers between, um, we touched on this before, Belginda, between indie brands growing and growing in recent years is that they can get their message out there effectively for free. Okay, there's some advertising that goes on um, on social media channels, clearly, but um, they can sell for free online if they you know, anyone can set up a website nowadays and they can advertise and get word of mouth out there. It's becoming more difficult with the uh, dreaded algorithm. Um, <laughs> however, it is now possible and that's why we've seen almost an explosion in recent things. Would you agree, Louisa? I think, yeah, and I think that the reason for that is that the customer can really feel like they're on the journey with the, the indie brand because it's usually a journey and they sort of you know, and they go through the ups and downs and they understand sort of what that founder often and certainly the the group of of people working on that brand are going through and how they're progressing and, and it's sort of feeling that they're part of it really helps and that social media is part of that. Are there any indie brands that stand out to you particularly at the moment that you've been watching that you think are growing? God, I've got so, so many. <laughs> so I mean, there's so many amazing brands out there. Let's I think we're actually, I mean, there's a great Japanese brand that uh, is a hair care brand. And I think it's Uka, U-K-A. Yeah, I've seen that. that. Yeah, yeah. And then there's um, an, another hair care brand that's just about to launch that's based on Ayurveda which is interesting because I think there's going to be a new Ayurvedic movement. That was one um, of my just, key trends for 2019. Yeah, because I think, yeah, because I think, younger I think just sort of, you know, the, the millennials, centennials have never seen that before. If you're at my age, you've seen it twice. But, you know, I think they've, they've not seen it before. I was just going to go back to the Instagram thing. I think there's something to be said of word of mouth as well. Yeah. Like, aside from what happens on social media, mm. brands really tend to get traction i think when there's when it, the product is good i mean mm -hmm. take the brand out of the way and the branding etc if the product is good and people use it and word of mouth spreads i think you can really build up a great independent brand and following but the product has to have efficacy i think that's vital mm -hmm. and uh, and i think that that's what 
to me that when I think of an independent brand, I think of that efficacy mm-hmm. and the fact that if I if I use a product and it's amazing, I will tell somebody. And that's going back yeah. to sort of the old fashioned way of the yeah. way things used to exactly. work. People exactly. will talk about it. People will say you should try this, yeah. and it's just a further reach. Yeah. yeah, and I think also forums as well are really good. Um, Facebook groups and yeah. and that kind of thing mm. as well because everything gets discussed and you get to hear about brands that you wouldn't necessarily have seen in the UK that you might have heard of for, from Australia or the US. Um, so I think those can be quite an interesting space to see what brands and what's happening and that kind of word of mouth. Yeah. I think obviously influencers, the credible influencers are really important in that as well. And again, you know, any influencer worth their salt is going to be based on the product yeah. and the efficacy and the benefits and how it helps rather than it just looking good it looking good isn't enough it has to function and you know as long as it doesn't smash in the bathroom or whatever else then you know it's a it's a good thing too so when we're talking for example consumer led movements I and mean, a lot of brands that i've noticed recently are, are actively sort of harnessing that forum approach i mean obviously the big one is glossier but there's also for example milk recently it just asked its fans for christmas where it should go next and they said the uk so it's arrived already you know they had been planning that for some yeah, years okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course yeah. but it, you know it, it's that way that they they chat and to to their followers directly that they have a voice mm. it's not so much from above and i think that's quite an interesting trend people want them to be more brands to be more approachable nowadays Is that's that the, the thing yeah i think being more approachable and transparent um consumers are just really aware now of everything that's happening they want to be a part of it they want to understand and they want an explanation as to why why things are happening the way they are and if you if you can do all that and you know like you were saying the efficacy is there your mm-hmm. products are good and everything's right then you know the consumers are going to like it and the word of mouth is going to pass mm-hmm. around and you know it's inevitable that a product can take off in that sense i think i think there's um really interesting when you look at things like beauty pie inky list revolution is another mm-hmm. one and i think there's been a real movement in terms of um being transparent and honest about the cost of goods and how yeah how much yeah. products yeah. cost to make and i think even with a glossier and a milk, there's a real transparency about the sort of manufacturing side of the business. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's been a bit of a game changer in terms of independent brands. Definitely. I think um, Beauty Pie is really interesting and I I still can't figure it out. But um, I think, you know, they had such an amazing... You need um, an abacus. I do. It's just like, hang on, so if I get this and this and, you know, we've talked about doing a pool at work where we all can get it and everything and, yeah. But I think also with that, you know, they have to then be ready, particularly because they are, you know, still independent brands. They have to be ready for people to really demand the product and not be out of stock because I think what happens then is that there's this of fulfillment and frustration but you know they've committed to paying the monthly subscription or whatever but still need to then be able to back it up because we are going to be absolutely after these brands and wanting to buy everything and really immerse ourselves in them so yeah making sure that the stock's there and ready is also an important part and that's probably the biggest challenge i mean virginia as as the owner of an independent brand how do you deal with that for example you've had some press after that, do you see a rush? How do you suddenly... Yeah, we do see. I mean, we haven't actually... Our products aren't actually available yet. They will be as of March. And we have had 
quite a lot of people interested in our products, um, whether it's through email, contacting us through social media, whether it's a, a phone call saying, oh my God, I love the look of that, you know, when can I buy it and how much is it for and, and everything. And all of that has kind of really given us an understanding for the types of um, quantities that we need to have in stock before we even get to that point of, okay, here you go, you can, you can you know, now buy these products. Um, so I think it's just about hearing the feedback that you're getting and understanding in, in relation to numbers and quantities what's needed at that time. That's one of the benefits of being an independent brand. Um, because your ear is kind of so close to the ground, mm. you can figure out what's going on and, and you know, you can make your orders according to what you're hearing and the feedback you're getting. But I think financial limitations for indie brands means that you're more, you, you innovate. I mean, you're, you, you know, yeah. that literally makes you do all the things we're talking about and being sort of involved and being close to your customer because you're not a big brand with, you know, a huge amount of money behind you. Of course, yeah. So you can't have stock kind no. of backed up and just ready. Yeah. Um, you really just have to fine tune to, you, have you to know. be nimble. Don't very, yeah. very nimble. Yeah. And you have to be very agile. Word, actually, you have to be yeah. kind of on your feet, know what's happening and when to get the stock in and when it's ready to kind of, you want it to be out as soon as it comes in really and, you know, have that. Process. I always say it's like when you start, when you start a brand, and I've had quite a few iterations at it, um, when you start a brand, it's like you're the, you you think you're going to be the horse pulling the cart, but actually what happens is, is the cart pulls you. Yeah. And it's you have to be nimble, opportunistic, mm. and really good at cash flow. Because you just, <laughs> you know, you just never know when an opportunity is around the corner. I mean, if you've got an order from a Sephora, you know, you're going to have to figure out how you're going to manufacture yeah. that product because you cannot turn that down. Yeah, that's the it's thing. Really difficult. If yeah. you get if you get a good retailer that are interested in you, they they don't pay you the very second that they made no. the order. You might no. have to wait months before that yeah. comes through. Sometimes three. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You need to fund that order, and then maybe a potential another one that you get, um, you know, around the same time. And it is just very, very kind of watching your cash flow making sure everything works out i did hear something recently and i don't know whether it's some sort of european commission law that if you're a small brand you can actually force retailers to pay you i know something yeah. about that terms that yeah. are better for you because there are some retailers that that do drag out their payment terms and it can really kill a small brand it really yeah. is mm -hmm. quite shocking actually mm -hmm. how you know sometimes it's 90 yeah Yep. That's a third of the gestation of a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Sephora because sure, as well as Instagram, surely Sephora is, is one of the huge drivers of this indie brand trend because it's trying to stock its shelves with new and interesting to keep people coming into store um, or buying online as, as the case may be. They also have so many incubators going on. How does that work? How do um, Sephora pick out these brands that they've decided to incubate and how does that affect the brand itself? I did have a conversation with somebody about this yesterday, interestingly, and I think what happens is is that, and I think they even did it with milk, I think what they do is they give you more favourable terms so you can get the brands created. So I think they do um, uh, support in terms of uh, committing to orders so that you can then go and raise funds to get the products created and I think they use a lot of consultants to... Um, look for brands they know which areas they need so they'll say oh i need a hair care brand that um covers this this 
element of the market and then they'll go out and look for it. They they run a programme as well, don't they, where mm. independent brands can apply and then they will kind of help you from where you are up until a point where you are now eligible to be stocked in their stores. So I think in that time they, they kind of see which ones are most relevant, which ones they can resonate with the most um, and you know kind of go go with that. Yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the larger companies do that. I know I work with a brand that L'Oreal have incubated, which is a, a CBD brand and also a nail brand that Cosnova in Germany have incubated. And they've literally created sort of um, a product development division that is, I mean, the, the formulations are revolutionary that are coming out of this, out of Cosnova's incubator group. So I think a lot of the larger companies are doing it. And that's one of the ways that the so-called legacy or heritage brands are almost fighting back, if you want to yeah. consider it a battle, isn't it? That they are A, incubating and B, buying, yeah. um, which comes back mm. to the de- definition that we were talking about at the beginning is, is how do you define an indie brand and how how can indie brands remain independent if they've been incubated? Um, on the other hand, if they don't have funding, how can they ever grow? It's it's the catch twenty two for an indie brand, isn't it? It really is. I think it depends on on the team that's working on that brand. I think the problem is if a, a large brand just sort of sucks in an indie brand and it just sort of merges into it, that's no longer an indie brand. I think you you've got to look at sort of why that brand started and. You know, the founders and the people that started the brand usually have that passion and really know what the brand is about and what it stands for. And I think if you lose those people, then you've probably lost the essence of that brand. If we're talking strong founders, figureheads, what does happen when that founder is no longer a part of it? Because, I mean, obviously this week we've had the sad news that Brandon Trax has died. How... Is the ordinary going to, and SEM and wider brands, going to survive that kind of thing? Is it now just going to become a part of Lauder? Do we now consider it a Lauder brand? Or, or? I think, this, I mean, it was a similar situation when Frank Toscan died and, and Mac was Lauder owned. I think that, I think it really depends on the brand. Mm-hmm. I mean, Brandon was a disruptor, a huge disruptor. And I think Estee Lauder as a company actually have more empathy an understanding of founder-led brands than actually some of the other larger organisations do. Mm-hmm. So I think if anyone's going to manage it well, it will be Lauder. Mm. Um, and I think that that some brands will strip the found, founders out and gladly strip them out and not care at all. So I think it depends, really. Well, if you look at the body shop, for example, that's a mm. prime example of the mm. founder yeah. was the figurehead, Anita Roddick, and it, it's almost lost a bit of its impact since um, Anita Roddick departed. Yeah, definitely. Um, and now it's been bought by Natura, of course. So, again, we might see a resurgence of that sort of grassroots mm. campaigning heritage that the body shop was always known for. Yeah, what I do you think, think they... Can you regain indie status? What do you think? Well, Bobby Brown did, didn't she? No, yeah. She had nine lives. <laughs> yeah. I think the interesting thing with body shop is, you know, it's a brand that we all grew up with and, you know, has a really big heart. And actually my daughter was saying, please, can we go to the body shop? I want to go and check out the Raspberry Ripple bubble bath you keep talking about. But I think what they announced, I think it was last week, that they were going to be um, doing a lot more activist activities, which mm. is what the, where their roots were, you know, pre-Lush. They were the activists. They, they were, were before their time. I yeah, mean, this is absolutely. what we're all talking about now. So I hope yeah. they do. I really hope they do. Yeah, but, you know, hosting events in their stores and doing a lot more of that kind of what you would expect and bringing much more of the experience 
back into the brand because I think, you know, when it becomes so proliferated on the high street, it suddenly, you know, does it lose that essence? And I think what Lush do so brilliantly, and, you know, they are still indie as well, is everybody in those stores is trained the Lush way. And it is literally like a, a tribe, and um, which is mm. quite interesting. So, yeah. Hopefully and they are two will. brands that appeal to those centennials. My daughter's yeah. a teenager and yeah. she mm. absolutely will only buy Lush Body Shop Skinny Dip. Those are the three yeah. brands <laughs> that she spends all her pocket money on. Well, when I was a teenager, the body shop Shops. was what yeah. I spent yeah, my pocket money on. Yeah. I had yeah. their posters on my wall and yeah. I even, for my 11th birthday, went to the factory. Your career was Did you? The factory, wow. um, for a visit and it was, you know, my dream. Mm. They, they do appeal. That idealism is something that appeals to that age group. Um, but, yes. but I think that's a really good example about indie. It's a really good indie example, isn't it? Like, mm. You, we always thought Body Shop was very independent and rebellious and then it was purchased by a company that squashed that and now they're regaining, regaining it. it. And I think mm, you yeah. can regain it. Mm. And and Lush is an ideal example of an indie brand mm. because it is still independent. Yeah. It's huge. It is yeah. huge, yeah. And so, they, uh, so it's not... Size doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <I'm out. laughs> Podcast. It does matter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it's, you know, that is, that's a really good example of an indie brand. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to be a heritage brand uh, to be big. You can be big yeah. and you can be indie. I think that's mm. not something that people usually stick together, yeah. but it, but it can work. I think one of the one of the biggest trends we're seeing at the moment are people people looking for a more purpose driven life. So if they can tap into that, if you can see mm. that you know like Body Shop are doing now and everything, and they're getting a real true feeling of achievement and you know we've really achieved something and satisfaction from that brand, then then maybe they can make a bit of a resurgence. Mm. Otherwise, I find it difficult to see how a heritage brand can become indie again. Well, let's talk about that because that's, for me, one of the key factors. I mean, whether we're drawing the line with Disruptor Indie is that messaging is one of the key things for indie brands. And we've seen a lot of that, for example, getting the diversity right, getting the environmental side of things right, the sustainability are we expecting a lot from indie brands, however, because they don't have these huge budgets to go, you know, forging away of, oh, I'm going to invent a plastic-free bottle and, you know, I'm going to hire 17 models for my campaign. What do we think about that? How can you as an indie brand navigate? Well, I mean, we're looking at it at the moment, we're looking at getting rid of all plastic packaging. And it's going to be difficult because we, you know, it will have to happen gradually. And I think that's, you know, we're acting quickly so we can move fast. But actually, we're going to have to introduce that slowly and make sure that, you know, we, we get the, the numbers right, because it's not a cheap way of of packaging. But I think that we can maybe, you know, we're a bit more agile, maybe than uh, the big Brand. So we can sort of implement that very quickly and decide that that's what we want to do. Yeah, I think indie brands are going to find it difficult because it's, you know, it's all about finances in the end. So it is tough for them. I think there's some confusion in terms of the, the messaging of recyclability. And I think that's really confusing for the consumer because I think that a lot of heritage brands are saying that they have recycled or recyclable packaging, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean it was already recycled. It no. means that you as a consumer can now do something about it. So mm -hmm. the onus yeah. is on me again. Mm -hmm. The brand aren't really doing anything. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of, in terms of messaging of these kind of um, action points that make the brands modern, I think that we, personally, I think we confuse the consumer and I think we need to be clearer. I think with indie brands, they're slightly clearer mm -hmm. about what it is they're actually about to do. 
Yeah, I, th- I think indie brands with the general consumer are a lot more, from what I've seen in our in terms of our brand as well, much more transparent and kind of very open. In yeah, terms of it's about being honest. It's about is saying, open and honest. You know, this is what we want yeah. to do, and this is what we're striving to do. Exactly. And it may take a little while, but that's you know that's the plan. That's and the I think plan. that's and you know going back to talking directly to the consumer, that's what we can do. Um, through social media. Yeah, I, th- I think previously heritage brands have kind of, they've been the hero and they've wanted to lead the way. So like, you know, telling people or consumers, this is what you need to aspire to. This is what you should look like. This is how you should feel. And I think indie brands are saying, well, you know, actually you can feel how you want to feel. And, you know, the brands are kind of resonating with how people are feeling and what they're doing at the moment. So consumers are a lot more they can relate to that a lot more they feel that's real they feel it's genuine and they trust it more so even though you don't have the same funds of a heritage brand you come across and you are far more genuine so people probably don't or consumers don't need to think as much about making a decision um, following an indie brand because it's very clear what your plans are it's clear what your values are and um with with a heritage brand, it's not always clear to see that. And some of the values and, you know, some of those type of aspirations that they want you to aspire to have been quite questionable over the time. And I think heritage brands are now following suit of indie brands mm. in the sense that, you know, veganism or, you know, being cruelty-free even, or, you know, not every woman should be thin, skinny and tall kind of thing. So there there is a lot more diversity now. People are a lot more accepting of that. And, um you know, heritage brands will have to take that onto board as well. And let's talk about, in terms of transparency, being open about your product is fantastic from a consumer point of view. But what happens, I mean, let's talk dupes, because that's one of the worst things that can happen to an indie brand, isn't it, really, that a big company comes and virtually identically copies their product um, and markets it. Let's talk about that. How dangerous is that and has that ever happened to you? It's happened to us at Pop Band, yeah. We, I mean, Boots have done it to us, uh, Superdrug have done it to us. That's terrible. It happens a lot. Happens to, but I mean, it happens to everyone. everyone. I mean, yeah, everyone. I remember when we first did, we developed Ruby and Millie, and I went to Thailand. I got off a plane, and there was literally a copy of our <laughs> eyeshadow, which was like a stackable because mm. we did the stackables twenty th- something years ago, and that you could spend. And they were, it was a, a whole brand <gasps> created w- within months. Yeah. Just, it just happens. There's nothing I, you can I, do. About but it. I think all you can do, undoubtedly, when that happens, it tends to be an inferior product because it tends to just be let's quickly yeah. copy it, and they don't yeah. put any of the the real thought and care and love into it. And so all you can do is keep doing what you're doing and and keep that credibility and make sure you're you're always you know true to yourself. And and I think that's really going back to that indie brand of the passion that the founders and and those brands have, and that shows through, and it shines through every time. There's always going to be somebody yeah. who wants a cheap yeah, carbon of course copy, there is. Of course there and is. you can't really stop that. And I think a lot of that is consumer-driven. And I think that although we, we like to think that it's the brands that copy, I think that the consumer drives that. If you if I've got an eyeshadow that I've developed and put my heart and soul into, that I sell for £15, if somebody has developed a copy of it for, for a fiver yeah. and it's selling in the market, that's because there's a consumer out there that wants that for a fiver. And mm. there's not much you can do about it. You really do have to just own your brand and put your passion mm, into going. it yep. and, and just keep going because yeah. there's uh, there's enough consumers out there for everyone really. Yeah. And but I think also it comes down to the brand story and that brand loyalty and making mm. sure that you have a point of view and you have a point of difference. I mean, I, I remember when I was 
really, really young and Rouge Noir came out and I, there was no way I could afford Rouge Noir. And um, there was a Barry M alternative. So I bought that because it was the only thing that was accessible to me at the time. But I think with social media as well, you know, when brands are copied, like Scamp and Dude, for example, mm. um, yeah. you know, that just is disgusting and everyone knows it's disgusting. And so the, you know, fighting back to, which I can't remember which retailer it was. Next and us. Next yeah. and yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then it stopped. And I think with social media, particularly when, when a brand has got a real heart and a principle Face lace is a prime example of something that happened recently. And I think it was Buxom, which is a Shiseido mm. brand copied verbatim one of the faceless designs and put it out under the Buxom brand. And there was a massive backlash on social media mm. because people that know Phyllis Cohen as a makeup artist, a credible leader in our industry for the past 30 odd years know that she's put her heart and soul mm. into face lace and and um but it does but the consumer right. sometimes mm. we've had consumers that have tried those copies and then contacted us and said yeah, we've tried it and it's, it's a completely different product and that's the point and I think that you, you're right you just have to let the consumer do what they're going to do and, and realise themselves and make their own decisions in terms of what they're they're buying You don't think that there's a, a, a sort of a huge difference between for example Topshop producing something that they saw on the Chanel catwalk because we're never going to spend I mean I don't know about you but I'm never going to spend £20,000 on a jacket but you know £20 is different but if you take Pixie and I can't remember if it was Aldi or Lidl because in my oh, yeah, brain they're oh, interchangeable they're all, all that, yeah. you know they, they Lacoura <laughs> brand they're identical I mean obviously the formulation I can't can't speak for that but you know don't you think there's a difference between creating something that's £20 and something that's 5 I mean the, the difference between that's the sort of interesting thing of, about the Inky List and Beauty Pie. What they're saying is they're proving that actually that £20 product can sell for £5. The fact is, is that it's probably not the same formulation. That's yeah. the mm-hmm. thing. Not the same ingredients. It's, it's not the same ingredients, so it's probably not quite right. But I just can't see the cheap copy lasting. There's no the thing, longevity yeah. in it. Mm. The efficacy won't be the same. You won't have the same. Yeah. But it's no. got none of this. You know, we're talking about the story behind the brands. We're talking about people really, really having a connection with the brand. You know, when we're talking about cheap copies, they they won't have that. And I think that that's a difference as well. That will make a difference to people. I think when you buy into a brand, you do buy into the quality of the product. Personally, I like the packaging. I always like things mm. that look nice mm-hmm. in my house. <laughs> but there's an emotional attachment to it, and it might be the founder or the concept or the ingredients or, you know, how they're behaving, how they're behaving, you know, philanthropy and, you know, Mm. and I, and I do think there's an emotional attachment to a brand. And so, yes, you might be able to find a cheap version of Pixie Glow Tonic and Aldi, but A, it won't perform the same way and B, you won't stick with it for a long time. I think there's just a lack of longevity in in that. But I also think that, I also think that some people will just take offence to their, that blatant, Sort of, of shortcut. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just so mm. dishonest. And I think that people, I certainly feel that way when I see it. Um, maybe because I'm yeah. in this business yeah. and, I, and I know how much work goes into it. But I just find it quite insulting to the as a consumer. I'm yeah. still really mm. upset that Tesco owns Harrison <laughs> Hall or whatever it's called. Harrison I'm Hall. really shocked <laughs> that that coffee shop is owned by Tesco. Yeah, half of I it. I feel really... Mm. I feel, I've never been in there, but I do drive past that coffee shop and I feel mm. conned. I, th- I think 
God, that's not... Be transparent that, about that thing, it. Yeah, I mean, that transparency is so, so important and crucial, especially for independent brands. It's, it's just huge. And I mean, the scamping dude situation oh, yeah. that happened, I don't think any consumer would have thought, actually, yeah, I'll just go to Asda and buy the cheaper version because you just no. feel so wrong doing that. And it's really not fair. I mean, the whole message that scamping dude have and everything oh, behind their products. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, funny. Um, and did you notice just, that when you mentioned yeah. No, you did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's just... It's just actually awful to see them doing that it's just not right at all Estee Lauder apparently have an entire team a legal team don't they going out mm. searching for counterfeit products don't you think it's important do you think it's important to fend yourself do you think IP is important it's one of our things that I wrote down actually is the issues facing the industry for our mandate for British Beauty Council and I don't know whether we'll ever be able to re resolve the issues but it's definitely something that possibly as part of our sort of action points for the coming three years we'll look at sort of getting some strong PR stories on because I think that the minute you blast the story about counterfeit and dupe products to the public then it becomes more obvious to them that this exists and that it is affecting small brands and how it's affecting small brands. And what about when it happens the other way around? I mean, L'Oreal is currently suing Drunk Elephant for Sea Firma. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it's not it's not a one-way street necessarily. I mean, obviously I'm not a lawyer um, or a judge, so I can't say what the outcome of that case will be. But I think everyone has a right to protect their IP. Mm. I mean, that's, yeah, just, yeah. that's yeah. just fact, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't matter whether you're heritage or independent, protecting your IP is, is crucial. I mean, obviously there's the very obvious things like trademarking um, mm. that everyone needs to make sure that they're covered with very important for independent brands and again like the social media thing if you, if you can get people behind you um, understanding what's happened it's almost like they take the argument out of your hands then L'Oreal or Asda next they can't say actually no we're going to keep this product as it is because you know they're completely losing face in front of their own consumers so it's just What indie brands do you think we're going to see this year? Which are the ones that are going to be really visible? <laughs> Apart from yours <laughs> 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 you mentioned CBD oil, for example, earlier. Do you think we're going to be seeing? Oh a yeah, lot I think of we've that? got a yeah. lot. Of, there's a lot of CBD. I mean, I think trend-wise, you've got the CBD brands, which are interesting. They haven't got a very high, you know, percentage of CBD in them, but I think mm -hmm. it's a start. I don't think I don't think yeah. we'll see the real effect of that until we legalise marijuana. Mm. We've got to get past Brexit first. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's it's a long busy. way. Down. <laughs> um, um, Next on the list. To me, there seems to be a real uplifting sort of spirituality and brands that are pro emotional well-being I think is really important yeah yeah and I think also the area of the microbiome as well yeah. and understanding the effect that you know that has on your mental well-being but also on you know gut health and skin health as well I think it's really interesting from observing the trends that are out there at the moment and the trends that we've decided to follow, I think spiritual wellness and mindfulness and emotional wellness are huge factors. Mm. Um, and, you know, the whole purpose-driven life that people are wanting, vegan, cruelty-free, um, organic, they're all they're all things that our, our trends, our brand are following at the moment. Um, but the, the biggest one, even out of all of those, has to be spiritual wellness. And, like, mm. I mean, our, our products can promote kind of, um, you know, you know, detoxifying from negativity, mood boosting and just kind of enhancing your general feeling. You know, people aren't really looking for products that just do one job anymore, that just make your skin glow. People want more from the yeah. products. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can I provide that. I think cosmetics in general, when you look at sort of the category of cosmetics, whether we hair, skincare, makeup, fragrance, 
we've always been able to promote well-being and a spiritual uplift. You know, if I put makeup on, I feel better. If my hair's clean, I feel better. If I smell a fragrance, it reminds me of my grandmother. I think that we've always had that. We've just been very timid and afraid to mm. be outspoken about the benefits of it because we don't want people to think it's wishy-washy yeah. and mm. mindless and mind-numbingly boring. Yeah. So I think we're just getting to a point now where... As women, we're more empowered. I think we can speak up about the benefits of putting on a red lipstick when we feel a little down or when our skin doesn't look as good. And I think that that's evolving the brand's messaging. But I, I think it's always been that way. Mm -hmm. We've just, you know, I, I launched Aveda 30 years ago, oh, maybe even more than that, 30 years ago. And um, there were some people that thought it was, you know, a little silly because, you know, it was aromatherapy, Ayurvedic, very much based on how you feel. Um, and I think people thought it was a little vacuous and a little frivolous and light. And now that's becoming so important in mm -hmm. beauty. Well, I mean, I think with what's happening in the world, people are looking for something that is going to make them feel better, that it's going to, you know, and they're accepting those sort of messages. I mean, even where, you know, our message is about being kind to yourself. So it's not just about being kind to your hair. Yeah. It's about being kind to yourself. Yeah. Your emotions. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's slightly more to it now than just, um, you know, the red lipstick and making yourself feel good on the outside. And there's a lot more going on yeah, on the inside mm -hmm. yeah. that yeah. people are, want, you know, kind of conscious of their feelings mm -hmm. on the inside now and their emotions and, you know, how that even, you know, kind of reflects on the outside. So I think, you know, with certain products being able to work from the inside out, being able to show, you know, that feeling of happiness actually showing through in, in your and actually being able to see it in your skin. I think people have a lot more belief in that now. And just mental health is, a, you know, the awareness of mental health now is, is just amazing compared mm -hmm. to what it was, let's say, 12, yeah. 13, yeah. 15 years ago. So it's interesting. We just did a piece of work, which was um, we've just defined the beauty industry. It's never really been done before. But we used an insight marketing strategy agency called Britain Thinks, and they set about through roundtable discussions, qualitative and quantitative studies, defining what the beauty industry was. And ingestibles was something that I thought would be widely contested. And I, you know, because I, I wasn't allowed to get involved. So to sit back and watch <laughs> these things, this thing unfold. Ingestibles, very interestingly, was not contested as much as I thought it would. Very, very small percentage didn't think it belonged in beauty, but a huge majority of the people interviewed did think it belonged in beauty. So I think inner health, Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think it's really important. Yeah, I, th I think what, what we're finding is that the pace of life is increasing. Everybody wants to be super productive. Everybody wants to achieve everything all of the time. And sleep is like, why do we have to do that? It's come to that kind of point. So to feel mentally well, is more of a task now, I think, than it has yeah. ever been. Mm -hmm. So, and I, and I think consumers and even me, are, you know, willing to try anything that will actually mm -hmm. make you feel better about yourself or about anything that's happening around you. And you do need to give yourself a break. And, you know, whether that's, you know, through anything that makes you feel good, uplifts your mood and makes you feel like, yeah, let's get on with the day. Yeah, you know? definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think that kind of, now is the time, isn't it? It is, yeah. That such growing awareness of self-care looking after yourself mm -hmm. doing what makes you feel good and you know if you look good and you feel good then you're taking care of yourself and as much of of that as can be is great and you can pay it forward and you can take care of others and exactly you know. it's gonna get emotional <laughs> yeah. i just was, um, i've been utterly 
depressed and traumatized the past two years. I don't know about you. I need as much well-being as <laughs> yeah, I can get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> True. Brexit looming. Yeah. Uh, in conclusion, would anyone would like to add anything to the discussion? I think, you know, there are some amazing, because um, one of the, you know, one of the thoughts was, you know, when does an indie brand become a heritage brand or can an indie brand become, yeah, can that actually happen? Um, and there are some absolutely beautiful brands out there Shantakai, for example, is a really beautiful brand and, and Cordley as well. And then there's also brands like Aesop, who are owned by Natura, but not a lot of people actually know yeah, that. Mm. Um, but it still feels indie. So I don't think, you know, if a brand is owned by a multinational, it doesn't mean it's the end of its purpose. It doesn't mean it's no. the end of its opportunity to do good I think um or be compelling and interesting and still listen to consumers so um I think you know there are some gorgeous brands out there some still indie some owned equally some heritage mm. brands come back again and do have a second yeah, life I yeah, know that absolutely. there was a, a range of fragrances one of them was Babe there was a fragrance in the 70s that made a comeback <laughs> so there right. are you know there are sort of older brands that do make those kind of uh, comebacks and quite successfully mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, once I, they've been absorbed and they're then released. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. I think as a consumer, I'd just like to say, I, I mean, I find it really exciting when I go into the Sephora's of this world and look around to see new brands is really exciting because I'm, you know, as a consumer, I find that really interesting rather than if we look back sort of 20 years when you'd go into Debenhams and it's just the same old brands. I just find it all very exciting. Companies like Debenhams have sort of taken a bit of a, a leap, regardless yeah. of how they're yeah. doing. They've got yeah. the Kat Von D's and um, they've got some quite innovative brands in mm. there. Mm. I think you see quite a lot of the um, prestigious department stores kind of going that direction now. Mm. Um, I think Harvey Nichols do do a, a department within their store now, which yeah, is Beyond Beauty, yeah, Beyond Beyond Beauty mm. which is for independent brands pretty, pretty much. Mm. There's always going to be a lot of interest in indie brands, but a lot of independent brands that are founder-owned you know that the pot at the end of, the, of gold at the end of the rainbow is being bought by a multinational. Mm. Yeah. So you know the flip side of it is is it is that bad? Well, that was going to be my concluding question. Yeah, because, sorry, yeah. it's, it's most thank you, thank you for sorry. doing it for me because mo most indie brands indeed their sort of end goal is to be your exit either, strategy, either bought out or, or or funded to an extent where you know not longer have to do all those calculations and cash flow. Yourself. Well, it's so that somebody else does the finance and you can be the creative person. Okay, sometimes. You're your creativity gets absorbed or you know diluted diluted but mm. that is that is the goal isn't it that is um for a lot of indie yeah I, th I think the ultimate goal would be to be in a position where you have you know not limitless funds but funds that you need as and when you need them um but you don't lose your creativity your flair or your ability to make decisions mm. if those stay the same then i think the brand stays the same and i think it has much more of a value and just generally speaking i think now today is a great time for independent brands i mean the the type of resources and everything that are available to us now as independent mm. brands has never has never been the way it is now and it just seems to be growing and it's just a really exciting time because I'd conclude that with the rise in popularity of indie brands among consumers, the big guns are getting better at buying them and looking after them. I'd say that, you know... They're with, more respectful. With the, the, with the yeah, incubators, sure. with with mm. the, the, the way that a lot of the indie brands that are owned um, by L'Oreal or Lauder are actually being able to keep their independence and retaining their message. There's car crash mm. that we all know and there's some wonderful examples that we all know. But 
ultimately they're learning and they're managing this and and as as it gets more popular it it is becoming possible to be funded and independent yeah at the we same were one time. of the first incubator brands that boots created and then they went on to create a series of them and now they're how they work with those the talent like josh wood i think is is yeah. one well, I don't actually know, even know if he's an incubator, but he's definitely an independent brand that mm. Boots have launched. And I think how they work with people nowadays is much, it's very vastly different mm. than how they used to work with us. And I think the Bobby Brown example, Bobby Brown was a prime example of if you lose the founder and the creativity, you've mm. lost the brand, bring her back mm. at any cost. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, yeah. you know, I think it, there's there's a different tactic nowadays. Yeah, and so. it is about sharing the skill set yeah. as well and kind of, you know, everyone basically focusing on what they're good at to make it bigger and better. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an interesting space, definitely. Yeah, I think heritage brands need to stay relevant. And the one way they can do that is by joining forces with independent brands and giving them the respect that they deserve. Really. Mm-hmm. True. It's going to be an interesting year. Mm-hmm. Thank, yeah. you. thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, like, Thank you all for coming along today. Thank you, Louisa. Thank you, Valgina. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Millie. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. And thanks to our audience for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>